Chapter 23 of The Fortunes of Glencore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Fortunes of Glencore by Charles James Lever. Chapter 23 The Tutor and His Pupil. We are not about to follow up the correspondence of Sir Horace by detailing the reply which Harcourt sent, and all that thereupon ensued between them. We pass over then some months of time, and arrive at the late autumn. It is a calm, still morning. The sea, streaked with tinted shadows, is without a ripple. The ships of many nations that float on it are motionless. Their white sails hung out to bleach, their ensigns drooping beside the mast. Over the summit of Vesuvius, for we are at Naples, a light blue cloud hangs, the solitary one in all the sky. A mild, plaintive song, the chant of some fishermen on the rocks, is the only sound, save the continuous hum of that vast city, which swells and falls at intervals. Close beside the sea, seated on a rock, are two figures. One is that of a youth of some eighteen or nineteen years, his features eminently handsome, wear an expression of gloomy pride as in deep preoccupation he gazes out over the bay towards seeming indifferent to the fair scene before him and wrapped in his own sad thoughts the other is a short square-built almost uncouth figure overshadowed by a wide straw hat which seems even to diminish his stature a suit of black wide and ample enough for one twice its size gives his appearance as grotesqueness to which his features contribute their share. It is indeed a strange physiognomy, to which Celt and Calmuck seem equally to contribute. The low, overhanging forehead, the intensely keen eye, sparkling with an almost imp-like drollery, are contrasted by a firmly compressed mouth and a far-projecting underjaw that implies sternness even to cruelty, a mass of waving black hair that covers neck and shoulders, adds a species of savagery, to a head which assuredly has no need of such aid. Bent down over a large quarto volume, he never lifts his eyes, but, intently occupied, his lips are rapidly repeating the words as he reads them. Do you mean to pass the morning here? asks the youth at length, or where shall I find you later on? I'll do whatever you like best, said the other, in a rich brogue. I'm agreeable to go or stay. Ad utrumque paratus, and Billy Trainer, for it was he, shut up his venerable volume. I don't wish to disturb you, said the boy mildly. You can read. I cannot. I have a fretful, impatient feeling over me that perhaps will go off with exercise. I'll set out then for a walk and come back here towards evening, then go and dine at the rocker, and afterwards wherever you please. If you say that then, said Billy in a voice of evident delight, we'll finish the day at the Professor Taducci's and get him to go over that analysis again. I have no taste for chemistry. It always seems to me to end where it began, said the boy impatiently. Where do all the researches tend to? How are you elevated in intellect? How are your thoughts higher, wider, nobler, by all these mixings and manipulations? Is it nothing to know how thunder and lightning is made, to understand electricity, to dive into the secrets of that old crater there, and see the ingredients in the crucible that was boiling there three thousand years ago. These things appeal more grandly to my imagination when the mystery of their forces is unrevealed. 
I like to think of them as dread manifestations of a mighty will, rather than gaseous combinations or metallic affinities. And what prevents you? said Billy eagerly. Is the grandeur of the phenomenon impaired because it is in part intelligible? Ain't you elevated as a reasoning being when you get what I may call a peep into God's workshop, rather than by implicitly accepting results just as any old woman accepts a superstition? There is something ignoble in mechanism, said the boy angrily. Don't say that while your heart is beating and your arteries is contracting. Never say it as long as your lungs dilate or collapse. Its mechanism makes water burst out of the ground and, swelling into streams, flow as mighty rivers through the earth. Its mechanism raises the sap to the topmost bough of the cedar tree and waves over Lebanon. Tis the same power moves planets above, just to show us that there is nothing without a cause. There is one great and final cause behind all. And you will tell me, said the boy sneeringly, that a sunbeam pours more gladness into your heart because a prism has explained to you the composition of light. God's blessings never seemed the less to me because he taught me the beautiful laws that guide them, said Billy, reverently. Every little step that I take out of darkness is on the road, at least, to him. In part abashed by the words, in part admonished by the tone of the speaker, the boy was silent for some minutes. You know, Billy, said he at length, that I spoke in no irreverence, that I would no more insult your convictions than I would outrage my own. It is simply that it suits my dreamy indolence to like the wonderful better than the intelligible, and you must acknowledge that there never was so palatable a theory for ignorance. Aye, but I don't want you to be ignorant, said Billy earnestly, and there's no greater mistake than supposing that knowledge is an impediment to the play of fancy. Take my word for it, Master Charles. Imagination, no more than any one else, does not work best in the dark. I certainly am no adept under such circumstances, said the boy. I haven't told you what happened to me in the studio last night. I went in without a candle, and, trying to grope my way to the table, I overturned the large olive jar full of clay against my Niobe and smashed her to atoms. Smashed Niobe? cried Billy in horror. In pieces. I stood over her sadder than ever she felt herself, and I have not had the courage to enter the studio since. Come, come, let us see if she couldn't be restored, said Billy, rising. Let us go down there together. You may, if you have any fancy. There's the key, said the boy. I'll return there no more till the rubbish be cleared away. And so saying, he moved off, and was soon out of sight. Deeply grieving over this disaster, Billy Trainer hastened from the spot, but he had only reached the garden of the Chiaja when he heard a faint, weak voice calling him by his name. He turned and saw Sir Horace Upton, who, seated in a sort of portable armchair, was enjoying the fresh air from the sea. "'Quite a piece of good fortune to meet you, doctor,' said he, smiling. "'Neither you nor your pupil have been near me for ten days or more.' "'Tis our own loss, then, Your Excellency,' said Billy, bowing. Even a chance few minutes in your company is like wetting the intellectual razor. I feel myself sharper for the whole day after. Then why not come oftener, man? Are you afraid of wearing the steel all away? Tis more afraid I am of gapping the fine edge of your excellency by contact with my own ruggedness, said Billy, obsequiously. You were intended for a courtier, doctor, said Sir Horace, smiling. If there was such a thing as a court fool nowadays, I'd look for the place. The age is too dull for such a functionary, 
they'll not find ten men in any country of Europe equal to the office, said Sir Horace. One has only to see how lamentably dull are the journals dedicated to wit and drollery to admit this fact. Though written by many hands, how rare it is to chance upon what provokes a laugh. You'll have fifty metaphysicians anywhere before you'll hit on one Molière. Will you kindly open that umbrella for me? This autumnal sun, they say, gives sunstroke. And now, what do you think of this boy? He'll not make a diplomatist, that's clear. He'll not make anything, just for one simple reason, because he could be whatever he pleased. An intellectual spendthrift, sighed Sir Horace. What a hopeless bankruptcy it leads to. My notion is, twould be spoiling him entirely to teach him a trade or a profession. Let his great faculties shoot up without being trimmed or trained. Don't want to twist or twine or turn them at all, but just see whether he won't. Out of his uncurbed nature, do better than all our discipline could effect. There's no better colt than the one that was never backed till he was a five-year-old. He ought to have a career, said Sir Horace thoughtfully. Every man ought to have a calling, if only that he may be able to abandon it. Just as a sailor has a point of departure, said Billy. Precisely, said Sir Horace, pleased at being so well appreciated. You are aware, Doctor, resumed he after a pause, that the lad will have little or no private fortune. There are family circumstances that I cannot enter into, nor would your own delicacy require it, that will leave him almost dependent on his own efforts. Now, as time is rolling over, we should bethink us what direction it were wisest to give his talents for he has talents. He has genius and talents both, said Billy. He has the raw material and the workshop to manufacture it. I am rejoicing to hear such an account from one so well able to pronounce, said Sir Horace blandly. And Billy bowed and blushed with a sense of happiness that none but humble men so praised could ever feel. I should like much to hear what you would advise for him, said Upton. He's so full of promise, said Billy, that whatever he takes to, he'll be sure to fancy he'd be better at something else. See now, it isn't a bull I'm saying, but I'll make a blunder of it if I try to explain. Go on, I think I apprehend you. By course you do. Well, it's that same feeling makes me cautious of saying what he ought to do, for, after all, a variety of capacity implies discursiveness, and discursiveness is the mother of failure. You speak like an oracle, Doctor. If I do, it's because the priest is beside me, said Billy, bowing. My notion is this. I'd let him cultivate his fine gift for a year or two in any way he likes, in work or idleness, for they'll grow in the fallow as well as in the tilled land. I'd let him be whatever he likes, striving always, as he's sure to be striving, after something higher and greater and better than he'll ever reach. And then, when he has felt both his strength and his weakness, I try to attach him to some great man in public life, set a grand ambition before him, and say, go on. He's scarcely the stuff for public life, muttered Sir Horace. He is, said Billy boldly. He'd be easily abashed, easily deterred by failure. Sir, a bit. Success might cloy, but failure would never damp him. I can't fancy him a speaker. Rouse him by a strong theme and a flat contradiction, and you'll see what he can do. And then his lounging, idle habits. He'll do more in two hours than anyone else in two days. You are a warm admirer, my dear doctor, said Sir Horace, smiling blandly. 
I should almost rather have such a friend than the qualities that win the friendship. Have you a message for me, Antoine? said he to a servant who stood at a little distance, waiting the order to approach. The man came forward and whispered a few words. Sir Horace's cheek gave a faint, the very faintest possible sign of flush as he listened, and uttering a brief, very well, dismissed the messenger. Will you give me your arm, doctor? said he languidly, and the elegant Sir Horace Upton passed down the crowded promenade, leaning on his uncouth companion, without the slightest consciousness of the surprise and sarcasm around him. No man more thoroughly could appreciate conventionalities. He would weigh the effect of appearances to the various niceties, but in practice he seemed either to forget his knowledge or despise it, so that, as leaning on the little dwarf's arm, he moved along. His air of very fashionable languor seemed to heighten the absurdity of the contrast. Nay, he actually seemed to bestow an almost deferential attention to what the other said, bowing blandly his acquiescence and smiling with an urbanity all his own. Of the crowd that passed, nearly all knew the English minister. Uncovered heads were bent obsequiously. Graceful salutations met him as he went, while a hundred conjectures ran as to who and what might be his companion. He was a mesmeric professor, a writer in cipher, a rabbi, an Egyptian explorer, an alchemist, an African traveller, and at last, Monsieur Thiers, and so the fine world of Naples discussed the humble individual whom you and I, dear reader, are acquainted with as Billy Trainer. End of chapter 23